Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. And what that meant for me was that I could acknowledge, yes, I did a lot of dreadful things. I hurt the people I cared most about, but I didn't do it because I wanted to hurt them. I did it because I didn't know how wounded I was as an adult. I didn't know that I still was carrying all of the shadows, all of the wounds, all of those experiences, the traumas, the pain from my childhood that I carried into my adulthood. And I thought as the adult, I, I just, all I had to do was compartmentalize it or bury it. And I can get on with my life focusing on being a successful businessman and being a husband and being a dad. But I didn't know the profound impact that carrying all of those prior wounds and shadows, pivotal moments from my childhood hadn't left me. It was still there. And that was my guest for today, Jay Rothman. And I have an amazing conversation with this man. It's been a long time since I had a conversation this deep. So I was very excited why I was even editing it and re-listening to it. And I hope you guys really enjoy it. It's a little on the longer side, so I'm going to get right to it. But he's just, Jay's a transformational coach. He hosts a live show called Real Men, Real Talk. And obviously you can kind of gather what that's about. And you can definitely gather what that show's about by listening to him here. He's He's awesome. I come across a few of these people every once in a while. Slow talkers in the sense of just they want everything that they're going to say to be meaningful. Hence this episode being wonderful. So check it out. Make sure you listen to it here. And if you don't have the time to listen to it at all, pause it and pick it back up later on. But it is a great conversation with Jay Rothman and I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. All right. Later. stupid, boring stuff out of the way, but necessary because people need to know who you are. And, you know, as we continue our conversation, why, you know, we're having this conversation and how you have come along on your journey. And so who are you, Jay? Yeah, well, I am, in (laughs) fact, Jay Rothman, and uh, I'm a typical modern American male that grew up in society. I grew up in uh, a small town east of LA called New York. And having done so, I obviously, as we all do, we, we come into the life, born into a family, and we are programmed with belief systems from our ancestors, our parents. And then we run with the belief systems, uh, a lot of times unknowing that how we show up in our life is, is really less about how we think it ought to be. It's just what we know. It's what we were taught. So for me, I was living the American dream, or so I thought. Uh, I was chasing it. I had some significant success early in my life. In my early 20s, I already had acquired my first home. And by the time I was, I think, 25, I met and married a beautiful woman from Los Angeles. I was chasing the dream. You know, for me, my life was, was about being the provider in the home. Uh, wanting to provide a home where my wife could be a stay-at-home mom if she Mm -hmm. chose. And for me, what my driver was, was making money. And how I viewed myself and valued myself through self-esteem was always predicated on the next raise, the accolades, the bonuses, new opportunities in my career. But ultimately, what was always behind that driver was my self-worth and value was always predicated on income. Hmm. And over the years, what I, what I didn't know was that I continued to emulate some of the wealthiest people at that time in the early 80s now as my, I call them mentors and heroes in a very indirect way. Just knowing enough about them to know like, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening for me was I ended up getting lost lost in society, lost outside of myself. Uh, along, the, along the way, along the decades, I was married for just under 30 years. Uh, by the time we were divorced, it was at 30. But 
I picked up addictions along the way and none of which included alcohol and drugs, but I had my own cocktail of sorts and five addictions. And any one of those five addictions should have and could have taken me out at any given time. And fast forward, I was always in sales and marketing, uh, always in the same. I found myself in a, in a field, in a very small niche industry that provided me to have the opportunity to, to make a, a really nice living. Mm-hmm. And my goal, though, was always to get into management. And eventually I, I made it into management in my early 40s, senior, uh, senior vice president of a major corporation in Southern California. And, you know, things were going great. You know, it, it felt good. I felt like I had achieved. I made it. Uh, I was making now more money than I had ever made. And eventually uh, things got really challenging in the economy back in the 2007, 8, 9, you know, during that recession that we had. Yeah, I remember I got and, laid off. There you go. Down in Florida, yeah. Well, that's funny because I was actually on a trip in Florida in 2008 and I and I had a heart attack. I was 48 years old and uh, that was potentially my first awakening. You know, some people call it that, you know, that wake up call. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought for me, because part of my belief system was you just got to do two things, change your diet and get to the gym and exercise, get your heart healthy. And it worked for a short time. Yeah, I lost the 40 pounds and I became very, very committed to exercise. I'd go, I'd be at the gym at 4.45 a.m. so I could be done and at the office by 6.30 a.m. And what happened was it worked for a window of time until life got challenging again at home and at the office. Mm -hmm. And within less than a year, I had what you may understand uh, in the field of mental health and addictions is I had that effort moment where the stress was just, so amped up. And I didn't know, I didn't have healthy tools to help me calm myself down. And so I threw away all of my emotional sobriety and physical sobriety, not for alcohol and drugs, but for other addictions like food, mm-hmm. like cigarettes. So I, I went and bought my first pack of cigs again and started smoking and threw away healthy eating, made really bad choices. And fast forward just a couple of 24 hours later, or years later, I should say, I found that now my body was near death. I had accumulated. I picked up more diseases along the way. And when I woke up, I was now 54 years old. I was at Cedar sinai Medical Center, one of the leading uh, research hospitals in the world in Beverly Hills, California. And I was near death. I was hours from death. And my body was shutting down. And so began my healing journey because as I spent a week in a hospital having multiple procedures to save my life. I had some time to really kind of do what they call that reflection on your life mm-hmm. and ask myself some what I call pivotal questions in that moment. And the first question was, do I want to live or do I want to die? And what could that look like? What would that look like if I wanted to die? Now, in this moment, I wasn't thinking suicide. I was just looking at the progression of disease within my own body and how my body was, I was in trouble. And so I said, well, if I wanna die, what do I have to do? And it simple came, simple answer came to me. And I was just, just go home, recover from all this work and then go back to the lifestyle that I had been living. The lifestyle that was fueling what I call the quick hits, the quick ways to, to, to comfort myself, the quick ways to distract myself from feeling ultimately what I was feeling, which was the inner pain uh, unknowingly uh, living in this 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 internal home of loneliness and isolation. And I said, well, but if I want to live, what, what would that have to look like? And I started to have an understanding in that moment. And the answer was I had to be willing to basically die. In other words, the man that I was, I had to be willing to let him go. The lifestyle, the choices that I had made that were not only obviously hurtful to me, but they were hurtful to the people I cared most about, my family members. Hmm. And the choices that I had made had impacted my wife, my relationship at home, my relationship with my sons, my extended family, even friends that, you know, like an alcoholic, a drug addict, by the time you wake up, if you are given that gift of awakening, most of the people in your life are gone. You know, they've, they've turned their back. They've walked away because it's complicated, as you know. And so in that moment, Sean, I had to ask myself the next question, which was, well, If I was to die in the near term, would I be okay with that? And in that moment, I knew that 
The answer was no, because you see, I knew the man I had become over three plus decades of adulthood. And I hated that man in that moment. Hmm. I hated who I had become. But what I also understood, I had this moment of clarity. Some refer to it as an epiphany. I also understood that I didn't know who I was. I had lost myself. I had lost myself in my responsibilities at home, at the office, to my employees, my employer, my customers. I'd lost myself to me. I had no idea who I was. I knew how to show up with a suit and tie. I knew how to show up and say the things that I thought everybody needed to hear from me. But I also began to understand at that time was that everything that I thought was the truth of my life, in fact, was a lie. And everything that I thought was a lie, in fact, may in fact be the truth. And so began my healing journey. <laughs> that was back in 2015, coming up. Actually, uh, October 18th, I refer to uh, some people refer to it in the program of AA or NA, uh, a sober day. I refer to it as my new birthday because that was October 18th was I had been released in the hospital. Two days later, I stepped into the rooms of a program for codependency. Because okay. to me, that ultimately was that was my motherboard of all of my addictions that I had been living in. And so began truly that program saved my life. That program's called Al-Anon. That program gave me the foundation for living. And I took it, I took it like life and death. I knew that my life depended on me breaking the chain, me breaking the cycles to toxic and healthy behavior for myself and staying in relationships that, that were actually part of that I was addicted to. I was hooked and I needed to unhook as a codependent individual. So that's how it, that's how it all began. That's just a short version of, uh, of what life was like leading up to October of 15. And boy, how has life changed? It's pretty remarkable. Yes, it is. I love the whole, I mean, I guess you see it throughout history, throughout all stories, throughout all theologies, religions, the dying and being reborn again, you know, symbol or topic coming up over and over again, because mm. that's what it really feels like. This clinical psychologist I love, he talks about burning your dead wood, like literally, it's like lighting yourself on fire <laughs> and burning that dead wood off of you. Kudos to you, because I think to get to that point of even saying, all right, this is a joke. This is all a lie. Everything I thought is wasn't a lie is a lie. And when your belief systems come crashing down, that is a very difficult thing to do. And some people, I would say probably high majority of people will live in that their whole lives. Well, it's an it's an uncon it's an it's an unconscious way to live. Mm -hmm. you know, today I refer to it as uh, sleepwalking. It's the same thing. I like that. We're yeah. we're sleepwalking through life, not knowing who really has control over an inner life. For me, that was that was a big part of the awakening. Hmm. But the first step, as you and I have learned, when you step into a room for addictive behaviors, is surrender. And part of the surrender for me was just that, was that I was willing to say just that, like for my whole life, I always felt like I had to have the answers. Mm -hmm. Even when I wasn't sure, I came up with an answer. I came up with a, a quick response, reaction. But for the first time in my life, I was, I was able to say, I don't know. I don't know what I need. I don't know what's right or wrong, but what I do know is that I don't want to suffer anymore. I don't want to live in this inner bondage of darkness. Hmm. You see, here's, here's, a, here's the thing about illusions in life is that we look in into the window of other people and we draw a judgment pretty quickly. It could mm -hmm. be within 30 seconds, seconds to a yeah. minute or, or five. And we create a story around how we think their life is and how we think we want what they want. Now, from the outside looking in, my life looked pretty damn good, you know, from the outsiders. My wife was able to be a stay-at-home mom. We met, she was had just started out in her career. We were in the same business. But she she retired in her early 20s, got pregnant. And for the next three decades, you know, it was about her being a stay-at-home mom. Hmm. The intention was for, for her to be a stay-at-home mom and be present for the kids, be able to participate in their youth. You know, the typical PTSA mom and the art docent mom and... <laughs> There were those years, but there were also years that were very difficult for the two of us and for our family. And from the outside looking in, I had it. You know, I had the fancy cars. I had the expensive clothing, moved multiple times, always upgrading the home, the vacations, 
To a lot of people, it looked like we had it, we had made it. But for me, inside, it was a slow death. And it's interesting because, you know, I share this, this little story. It was, it was really a moment of, it was really a crossroads and I missed it. I missed the signpost. I think we were maybe eight or 10 years into the relationship. And at that point, I still had the courage to be, I felt safe to express to my wife how I felt at that time. And I remember I said to her, you know, I, I'm unhappy. I feel lonely. Hmm. And she said, well, what do you need? What do you need from me? And I said to her, I have no idea. All I know is, is that I feel empty inside. And she said to me, this was perhaps the most profound statement she ever said to me. Well, Jay, if you don't know what you need, how do you expect me to know how to help? Hmm. And this for me was such a powerful reaction. I said to her, because this is my truth. This is how I felt. I said, well, but wait a minute, you're my wife. How could you not know what I need? And that was a defining moment because nothing changed in our relationship. I mean, we, we both ended up, I ended up in counseling. I ended up in therapists, offices, marriage therapy, marriage counseling. We, we did the whole gamut trying to fix this so-called relationship that eventually ran its course. And it was a very, very painful end for the mm. two of us. But you see, it's even like when you go to a therapist and they say, how do you feel? There's a lot of people like me that would look at a therapist like a deer in a headlights and go, what do you mean? How do I feel? I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Well, what else do you feel? I couldn't, I had no idea. I was so detached from my own internal emotions that I turned off that spigot truly when I was a, a child growing up in my home. I didn't know as a man, I had permission to be in touch with my emotions and feelings. And I could even take it a step further and know that it would be safe and okay for me to be able to express what they were at any given time. I was taught to turn them off. I was ta taught to shut them down, to be tough, to be a man, man up. That's the definition of a successful man. And so that was my mantra. <laughs> but the first step was in fact, surrender. And surrender for me was being willing to say that I don't know today. I don't know what's right. But how do I begin to explore through self-discovery as a man at age 54, 55, and really get to know who I am, get to know what I like, get to know what I don't like? Because in a, as a codependent man in a family, it really was less about me knowing what my likes and dislikes were and putting my emphasis and focus on making sure that everyone else around me was taken care of or satisfied or, or happy. That's just, that's just part of the, the framework of codependence behavior. So it was really the journey about self-discovery. And if you've gone through self-discovery, you know it, it can actually be an absolutely beautiful experience. It doesn't have to be what we perceive it is, <laughs> which for many many, many men, millions and millions of men have this perception that self-discovery is scary, is painful, is going to cause me to hate and blame the people that had impacted my youngest years in my life. But if you've gone through it and you've been guided in a healthy way, you can begin to understand that it doesn't have to be that way. It actually can be a, a beautiful experience of what I love to refer to as coming home coming home to oneself. And for the first time in life, perhaps, like accepting who you are and getting to know who you are and beginning to actually fall in love eventually with that person called you. Yeah. And it's, it's funny how it happens slowly and, you know, as the process continues, but what did that, I guess let's just continue down this road because I always say that is like the first step obviously is always just knowing you're even caught up in the game, right? As you said, you finally, you woke up to these lies, everything you thought was true, you know, wasn't, and you were stuck in this game of obtaining what society told you was success, what a man was, you know, that their definition of success. And then you have this moment of discovery, like, all right, I've been lied to. And you get to that point where you feel that fear because it is, I mean, at the very beginning, especially, it's scary to go into the darkness, to go in into oneself, go through the pain and the anguish and the things that have been wrong. So what did that process look like for you, Jay, as far as when you met that crossroad right there, like this is going to suck. And now I hear you saying, oh, it can be something beautiful and positive. You know, how did that shift happen in your mind? That's a that's a beautiful question. Thank you for asking that. You know, it's interesting because in in the first year of my rebirth, I had to go through the mourning process. 
first, I, I chose to exit out of my marriage of, I mentioned 30 years, primarily because in, the, in that moment of clarity, I also understood that if I went home, there was a really good chance that I would make it. But I also had a knowing that there was a good chance my wife wouldn't make it either. She, she was dealing with her own demons, her own hurt, her own pain. And I just had this knowing. It was just this, it wasn't something that I thought about. You know, they say early on when you're in recovery, I don't care what the program is, they say, oh, don't make any, don't make any decisions in your first year. Think about it. Take time to process it. Well, I didn't take time to think about it because I, I started to hmm. experience that my life had to be less about my thoughts and thinking and more about learning how to tap into the inner, what I call the intuition, your inner wisdom. And it was just a knowing. It was just a strong knowing. It's like when you go to take that test in grade school and they, and they teach you to trust your gut. So you, you take that multiple choice test and <laughs> you, you answer it with B and then you go to self-doubt. And you erase B. Oh. And this is back in the 70s. You, you probably weren't using pencils and erases when you were in there. So I, I would change my answer most times because I go to self-doubt and I change it to A. And 95% of the time, A wasn't the right answer. It was the first answer, which came from my intuition, the gut. Hmm. You know, for me, the first year was very challenging because I opted out. I exited out of my marriage and it was it was perhaps one of the first times I had the courage to set a healthy boundary at that time in my life. When I, when I let her know it was over, I was, I, I wasn't coming home and she didn't agree. She communicated that to me. She conveyed, you know, we, we had three decades of memories. We had three decades of, of being together, raising these amazing sons. She said, I'm, I'm willing to go back to marriage counseling. I'm going to do whatever we have to do to save this marriage. And this was, for me, the really the the first defining moment in my healing journey where I had the courage to set a healthy boundary for myself. First time in this marriage, in my humble opinion. And that was, I said, you know, it's no longer about saving a marriage. For me today, it's it's about saving my own life. Wow. You know, I honored her in that moment. I let her know I will always love her and I'll always do my best to honor her as the mom of our children. But uh my decision was final. And I tell you what, it was, that moment was perhaps the first boundary I ever set in my life that came from loving kindness for myself because it's what I needed. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what happened for me, Sean, was I had to go through a mourning process. I, I had to mourn the death of my marriage, even though it was my choice to leave it. I knew that I needed to allow myself to feel all of the feelings of that loss, to honor it, to mourn it, to death. It would never be the same, not only for she and I, but for our sons that were at the time in their early to mid twenties. So that was the first death that I had to experience and walk through as an adult. All of the other deaths that had touched my life, I never felt before. They were never, even when a family member, my grandparents had died, but I was, you know, in my teens, it wasn't the same. This was mm -hmm. me showing up as an adult and giving myself permission to feel the loss of a relationship, a death. So that was the first death. The second death that I realized in my first year was the death of me. I had to give myself permission to mourn the person that I had become, that I had hated, to let him go so that I can release them. Hmm. Not in a mean spirited way, not with blame, not with guilt, not with shame anymore, but just respect him and honor him with accountability. For me, how that worked, it was such a beautiful experience because what I realized was that in order for me to heal, truly heal at the mental and the emotional level, I needed to forgive myself. And the only way I could do that was not gonna be through guilt, shame, and blame, but through accountability. And accountability for me became very clear. And what that meant for me was that I could acknowledge, yes, I did a lot of hurtful things. I hurt the people I cared most about, but I didn't do it because I wanted to hurt them. I did it because I didn't know how wounded I was as an adult. I didn't know that I still was carrying all of the shadows, all of the wounds, all of those experiences, the traumas, the pain from my childhood 
that I carried into my adulthood. And I thought as the adult, I, I just, all I had to do is compartmentalize it or bury it. And I can get on with my life focusing on being a successful businessman and being a husband and being a dad. But I didn't know the profound impact that carrying all of those prior wounds and shadows, pivotal moments from my childhood hadn't left me. It was still there. And what I didn't understand was that that little boy inside that today I love to refer to as JJ. That was my nickname that when you were younger, one person called me as, as a child, my aunt, my, my, my aunt said, but I understood then that JJ didn't grow up when I grew up. That little boy was still that little boy deep inside of me. And he was still that wounded child. And he showed up daily, hmm. unknowingly. And he either, he was controlling every decision I was making or my ego was controlling the decisions. But very rarely was I as my true higher self was I making those choices and decisions. So that was just, you know, that was all part of the coming home process of really <laughs> understanding. And, you know, it just comes down to breaking it down and understanding it. And what happened for me was once I, once I had all of this, all of these clarity and understanding through the foundation of the work I was doing in a 12 step room, but also I, for the first time in my life, gave myself permission to embrace what self-care can look like and feel like. I had never done that in my life because I never thought I, had the time. I never gave myself permission to have the time to take care of myself because ultimately I thought my responsibility was to take care of everyone else outside mm -hmm. of myself. And what happened for me was the self-care. I found myself, I, I left my home. I left the city I was, I had been living in. Universe guided me to a, a community not that far away, a town called Huntington Beach, California. I, I found the ocean. The last time I had really spent time at the ocean was when I was uh, a teenager and uh, my, my dad had taken up boating and, you know, I, I just had lost the importance of the water for me. And that's where I found myself every single day, every morning at sunrise, I'd On show up at, at the beach. Yep. I just started to pay attention. I started to walk and I turned my music on and music became a huge part of my healing process. And I didn't know how to pray. I was, I was a self-willed man. I didn't have a relationship with a power greater than myself or God, the universe. I walked away from religion when I was a young teenager. But in this healing process, I was open to ask for help. You know, I, I believe that, that God showed up just on time. Ask a friend. I had to ask a friend, Sean, how do you pray? I had no idea. I had never hmm. done it. Other than when I was a kid, and it wasn't even a language I spoke that I prayed in, <laughs> in my religion. You know, for me, I'm not a religious man today. I am a spiritual man. And I, I don't think I'd be alive today if, if I hadn't embraced spirituality and, and understanding the power of God, the power of the universe, the power of life, and how I could create a relationship within myself. And I, I carry it with me every day, you know, through prayer and meditation, meditation and movement. There's so many, there's so many moving parts to the healing journey. Yes, there is. Yeah. I mean, whether it's your diet, your exercise, I mean, what you're reading and there is so many different you know, aspects that I think that we can change. Jay, you, you got, a, you have a powerful story, Matt, and you, I feel like you have just thought about it so much. The way you express it and the way you can communicate it, I think is, is awesome. I, I always struggle myself. All right, how am I going to communicate this clearly? And I'm sure you've probably put a lot of work into it, but it sounds like you, you, you do it very naturally because your story is very concise. And I just love how you have really broken it up into chunks and almost like you've taken the 12 steps and kind of reinterpreted them a little bit, put them in the more modern language, which I like. I personally, it was not... I've been to a bunch of AA meetings with friends in that 12 step. I never really got into it. I tried to sponsor through an AA program and I was like, after, after a few months of that, I was like, all right, I'm not, I can't handle this anymore. Why, why do you think that was? Um, I, I'm sure it would be better if I f found, I guess maybe a better sp sponsor. Maybe it was just a whole, a, so much of AA I found is in the sponsor thing is, especially when you're first in recover early recovery is that you do what I say, kind of when I say it thing you know like nope don't do this don't do that and I remember 
I was talking with, it's funny, I, I look at our stories and just from little I heard of you, we have very similar ones. I found that my heroin use was really mainly because of my divorce that I decided to get <laughs> and had no idea how to deal with afterwards. Um, the shame, the guilt, the feeling like a failure uh, as a son, father, husband, brother, whatever. So it's funny, we have very similar stories, but it took me a long time to really get to that point of, all right, how do I deal with this? How do I handle this? And how do I face it? And I think it's just important that we all kind of have a process. And I love the way you put yours together and you know how you talk about it. And I think it's it's difficult to come to a point of surrender, to come to a point of, I can just let things be that even though I don't know what the outcome is going to be, even though I don't have any control. And I think the less we feel like we have control, the more we try to control things and the less we have control and it just gets crazier and crazier. <laughs> it's no doubt it's a loop. Um, I love what you shared because it's your story. It's your truth. And I appreciate what you share with me in, a, in our production meeting a couple of weeks ago before mm -hmm. we, we went live here. But what I do know is that I don't believe there is a right way and I don't believe there's a wrong way. It's learning how to tap into your way, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what it is. What matters <laughs> is that you either choose to live or you choose to die and, and how you get there. If, if taking direction from someone else is what an individual needs and it saves their life, then it works for them. But just like, you know, a GPS system, you, you put in the address and you're going to be given three or four different choices on how to get there. And even when you pick what you think is the going to get you there the easiest way, the quickest way, even in that moment, while that voice is telling us which way to turn or go, we sometimes doubt even that voice. Mm -hmm. And we may make a different choice that maybe in that moment may have been the right way. But oftentimes we go, wow, I should have stayed with her. She may have been right. But even when we say she may have been right, when we made that choice to deviate from that GPS to get us to our destination, maybe it was that turn that we needed to make to have that experience along the way of the journey to get there. And maybe that turn was more important than us getting there on time. Hmm. If we don't waste it, if we slow down long enough to look at it and say, okay, what can I learn from this moment? It's a beautiful metaphor for life. And what happened for me was everything changed. You know, I refer to it as the, the three C's. You have clarity, which happened for me primarily in a hospital. The second C is courage. It took courage to step out of my comfort, which was killing me. My comfort was my life as it was, but it wasn't working anymore. And in the third C is commitment, commitment to self. And here's where we, we get lost a lot of the time, Sean, because we have this part of our belief system in many homes in our society is, is that knowledge is power. And so we keep signing up for more courses. We sign up for more, we buy more books. We sign up for retreats. We sign up for mm -hmm. seminars. We just keep we just want more, more knowledge, thinking that if we just get the next, the next thing, maybe I'll get it. Maybe I'll, I'll wake up. <laughs> this will be the one that changes me. And here's where we have a fracture in that belief that knowledge is power. Knowledge may be power, but action is superpower. And action is where change happens. If we put the book down three days later and we just go back to our routines in our life, nothing's going to change. Even if we have that knowledge, yep. newfound knowledge, it's not going to impact our life unless we take baby steps, action steps. So Jay, how did you find the balance between the two? Or how do you, I guess, continue to navigate the balance between the two? You know, it's, it's interesting for me. I, I found that I remain open and flexible to shift, pivot, mm -hmm. recalibrate. I've had multiple setbacks along this healing journey because you see, I, I wasn't looking just to heal the physical medical diagnoses. I understood that for me to really come home to myself and begin to like myself, begin to no longer feel empty inside, 
I had to focus on four areas that I refer to as my four pillars. There's the emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual. And if I just focus on one and not the other three or two or not the other four, I will never ever understand and have the experience of true inner balance. Hmm. For the first time in my life, I didn't look at my life as black or white because I was always either far left or far right, hmm. always thinking to the extremes, yep. one or the other. And what I began to understand was that true balance is somewhere in the middle. True balance is it doesn't have to be left or right. It doesn't have to be black or white. It doesn't have to be blue or red. When I am able to focus on all four pillars, which my commitment to myself is to focus on that daily, I have a better day. And the only thing I am guaranteed is just today. So I try to keep my focus through my thoughts just on this moment and today and not let my thoughts take me out to tomorrow that I call the future trap or take me <laughs> yeah. back to my past, which is going to stir up all other emotions that aren't going to serve me. So it's, it's a process. The process is, is about learning how to create balance in your life through being open and flexible to shifting. You know, like if you have a shift stick, a stick shift in your car, you have to know when to, when to shift gears. And it's the same thing in this, this journey called life. It's starting to pay attention to know when we need to shift gears or when we need to take our foot off the pedal and slow down. And for me, the, the healing journey has really been a journey about slowing down. Slowing down enough to pay attention to what's really important. And through that process, what happened, Sean, was I started to journal. I started to write. Eventually, it became blogs. I started to, I made the decision that I realized that I wasn't that special. I wasn't that unique and different than millions or billions of other men and women in society, societies, I should say, from in the billions that had been living a life of someone else, someone else's belief systems that I inherited. And understanding that there are so many other humans that are chasing a dream that for me became a dream of a nightmare. And I wanted to begin to share the possibilities with others that it's possible that if we have the courage to surrender and focus, bring the focus back on our own well-being and invest in that, that we can improve the areas in our life that we're struggling, that we're just surviving. And for me, although it looked like I said in the window looking in that I had a pretty good life, I wasn't thriving. I was just surviving. And so began my, my next phase in, in my journey, which was wanting to share it in a very public way. No longer wanting to live in the secrets of addictions. Hmm. No longer wanting to live in the secrecy of how I felt, but practice expressing how I feel in a very public way. Sharing my story, hopefully touching other men and women that are sick and tired of feeling like crap, sick and tired of surviving, feeling lonely, isolated, in pain. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah and begin to share what I call the blueprint for success. Hmm. I went back to school at 55, 56, and- That's awesome. Became a, I went to school and became a certified coach. Today, I'm a transformational coach. I work with clients globally, all over the world. I'm not there to help people today. I'm here to inspire people, to bring hope that it's possible that, that they too can improve their life. They too can improve their relationships. And so that's, that's the work I do today. I, I spend most of my time as a coach, inspiring, bringing hope, sharing my blueprint, my GPS system. That doesn't mean it's going to work for you, per se, but I do share what worked for me. And then the key as a coach is being a really good listener, creating a very mm -hmm. safe space where the client is willing to open up, share, or perhaps maybe they haven't shared with anybody else. And what I learned in my own healing journey is that when we're willing to reveal it, we can heal it. Well, say say that again when you're what? When you're willing to feel it and then reveal it, we can heal it. Ah, I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's what I do. I, I hold space, you know, I show up. I put 100% into invest into my clients in the moment. I hold space for them. I hold their heart space and the miracles unfold. It's just a beautiful 
incredible process. Uh, I picked up mentors along the way in the past five mm -hmm. years. I really never had a mentor in my life. I never was willing to invest the time or the money for myself. I've had in five years, probably six plus mentors that I have been touched by that have impacted my own life. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of mentorship, of, of embracing the idea that we don't need to fix ourselves by ourselves, that we can ask somebody to guide us, to inspire us, to somebody that we think we may trust. Hmm. And what happened for me, it was very much like you, Sean. Uh, I, I knew early on that I, I wanted to launch a, a podcast. I wanted to launch a, a show format, an interview show where I could bring guests in, specifically at the time, men. And I had this idea that I wanted to create a show called Real Men, Real Talk Raw, where I would bring men in that, that have stories very different than mine and some maybe similar that had, had hit a dead end, that hit the last stop on a train station and have a story of inspiration to share so that we can touch other men's lives and other women's lives that maybe haven't given up on their partner, their friend, mm -hmm. their child even, and bring hope to those family members. And so I launched Real Men, Real Talk, Raw, and I launched a couple of other shows thereafter and uh, was running with that for a couple of years. And early on in 2020, I decided to relaunch Real Men, Real Talk, Raw as a different type of framework of a program. And today it's not an interview format. It's where I've got four other co-hosts, four other men that are have achieved some level, some significant level in their own life, mm -hmm. in their careers, but are also on a very, very, I'll call heightened spiritual journey of self-discovery. And we get together every week and we have a topic and we go live. It's not recorded. We, we come in live without a script. And uh, it's a it's an incredible it's an incredible show where we touch thousands of peoples of life every week, people that are either in a relationship, want to be in a relationship, or want to heal themselves. And we have I don't know the mix of men versus women, but we have many women that that watched. We have many men that watch, and we have many couples. It's their date night. That's couples great. are coming in together and are taking advantage of our, of our talk show, you know, think of the red table. I think it's called the red table. It's a show. Will Smith's wife is part of it's uh, they're on Facebook and I think YouTube too. I wouldn't say think of the view or the talk because those shows are more about current events and politics. And mm -hmm. it's those shows are more about uh, entertainment entertainers and gossip where anything but that we don't gossip where we avoid Politics, we avoid current events, although we did do a show uh, early on uh, in uh, when the, the, the pr protests were going on earlier this year. But other than that, we're focused on real men, real talk. The talk that you don't hear in a boardroom and you won't hear in a locker room. It's talk about love, kindness, respect, and us showing up as men, feeling safe enough to be vulnerable. And at times we may break down and cry when we get touched or we have a moment of clarity, even in a show. It's just an absolutely beautiful platform that, that we have created. And we're, we're shopping it out right now on network TV and, uh, and digital platforms and hope to be picked up soon. Yep. That's amazing, man. It's funny. As you say that, I started kind of smiling as you were saying, you know, we talk about how we feel. And I remember I worked in a kitchen most of my life, at least uh, pre pre heroin addiction. And I remember when I first saw Brene Brown's talk on vulnerability, it's probably 26. It was right. It was, no, it's probably 23. It's probably a couple of years before my divorce. And I remember trying to implement this stuff in my life. And I remember a few years into it, I ended up saying something, bringing, talking to somebody about it. And a, a guy overheard and, you know, he's like, you will say he called me a sissy. So I don't have to edit it out and have to worry about it. <laughs> He's like, you sissy. And I remember looking, I was like, man, it's taken so much more courage, so much more strength, so much more bravery to walk into this zone of vulnerability to say, hey, that hurt me, that bothered me, or this made me feel this. It took so much more courage and strength to do that than to ever just repress it, ignore it, and man up, in quotes. And I mean, that's what I, I tell everybody. I mean, it takes so much courage to do that. 
no matter how old you are, no matter where you've been, what you've been through. I mean, it's an awesome experience. And as you can attest to it, as you've mentioned, there's, there's beauty in it somehow. You find beauty in it. You find how to have joy and during the pain. The beauty, I, I, I think for me is, uh, it's about inner freedom. Mm-hmm. It's, it's breaking the chains. It's breaking the ties to the inner bondage, which, which was the pressure as a ma- as a man that I felt that how I needed to show up. Mm-hmm. How, how difficult do you find it for yourself to maintain showing up and giving yourself permission to express your feelings and share your vulnerability? And in a given day, is it is it a challenge for you today or, or where where are you at in that? Not so much. Uh, where I have to pay the most attention to it with me is the people that I'm closest with. Uh, for um, I can be, it's easy for me. I, I would say I feel like most people it's easier for to be vulnerable, at least for me anyway, I guess. I'll speak for me. <laughs> be vulnerable in front of people I don't know, as opposed to people that I'm closer to, like, you know, my, my girlfriend, I've been together with her. She's been through, you know, all of this with me, but it's always, always a overthinking game with me of if I tell her this, is this going to cause her to think this way? Or is it going to cause her to think that way? And what is she going to do to this and that? And I have to really catch that early on because I tend to overthink things all the time. But I mean, again, I think you know, I, I mentioned it earlier to you. It's a constant process, right? Of always checking Am I being this person that I am aspiring to be and this person I want to be? And, you know, it's, it's quite, it's quite the journey. (laughs) You know, you, you touched on something really powerful in this moment. And, um, if I may, I think, I think in relationships, what happens is that part of our concern is that if we are vulnerable, if we do share our truth, how will that other person receive it? Mm -hmm. And, if it is a relationship of intimacy between a boyfriend and girlfriend, husband and wife, so on and so forth, how will they perceive me? Mm-hmm. Will they still respect me? Will they still love me? Will I be lovable? Where are they at in their own process of showing up as a true authentic self without any prejudgments and precursors? You know, I, I think it's it's a huge part of the process of of coming home to yourself that trusting that if I'm with someone that I've got to be concerned about saying it just the right way when I'm trying to convey how I feel, because if I don't, they may not want to be with me anymore. I see that for myself as there's still some residual shadow there. There's still that's still that that younger part of myself that's fearful, that you won't love me. And that's, that's ongoing work. I could tell you, mm-hmm. you know, even in my current relationship, we've been together coming up on five years. I am engaged to a, a beautiful woman. I, her name is Mary. I call her my angel because she hmm. showed up right on time. <laughs> I was at my rock bottom and boy, oh boy, did she show up on time in my life. And I wasn't looking for a relationship. It's just, you know, people ask all the time, how we meet? I say, it was God. It was God brought us together. But even in this relationship that is, that we've been together with for five years, I still get to show up in practice. Hmm. I still have a, a consciousness, awareness that probably my biggest fear in my relationship today is that I don't want to turn off the spigot. I don't want to turn off my consciousness with my feelings, my emotions, my ability to, to say what I feel, of course, with love and kindness, not coming from any form of disrespect or judgment. I'm referring to my own feelings about what I'm walking through or what I'm experiencing in any given day. But it does take practice because, look, for 54 years of my life, I didn't show up that way. 54 years of my life, it, 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 what I didn't know was that it was all about if I said it, would I still be loved? And that was a big part of, you know, in my marriage, I 30 year marriage. And the sad, one of the saddest parts for me was I remember feeling like I didn't, I couldn't trust my wife, but I had it all wrong. What I didn't understand was who I didn't trust was me. Hmm. I didn't trust me 
because I didn't know how to love me. I lacked what's referred to today as self-love. Yeah, it's interesting, Jay. I'm just starting a project with a, she has a private practice. She's a mental health counselor. And she just wrote a book called Selfish is a New Selfless. And she just sent me a copy of it. it has even, I don't even think she has it printed quite yet. But I started going through it. But that is kind of you know the thing I've discovered in my journey, especially over the last few years, is the more that you take care of yourself, the more that you set healthy boundaries, the more that you learn how to balance your life out, the more you learn how to do these things and take care of who you are, the more you take care of the people around you and then some. And it's it's kind of that crazy experience, but I kind of feel like that's something that's coming back around. I mean, I'm assuming from how what I've heard you talk, it's kind of been the general consensus with you as well. I mean, I remember you talked about really knowing when you set that first boundary for yourself that was good for you. And so many of us have trouble doing that. A, a title of a chapter of this book I really like is called Take Care of Yourself Like You Would Somebody You Loved. Because some people take better care of their dogs than they do themselves. Well, I agree with that statement. I'll take it one step further, my friend. I believe that the majority of people in American society, I'm not going to speak globally, mm-hmm. take better care of their cars <laughs> than they do themselves. Yeah, we we don't even have to we don't even have to go to an animal. We just look <laughs> at a, at a car. We know when to do an oil change. We know when to rotate the tires. We know when it's time to get the car washed. And many of us are even willing to invest more money today, like I am, and get the synthetic oil, which is supposed to improve the performance of the vehicle and extend the life of the engine. But yet, we are in epidemic proportions with suicide, epidemic proportions with diabetes, autoimmune diseases, out of control, heart disease, cancer. We are a sicker society today than we were years ago. We are not healthier. No, we, we are, are not. We are not taught in our homes that we are worth synthetic oil. We are not taught that we are worth a rotation because we're just surviving. Now, I know that sounds, this is a powerful statement that sounds like doom and gloom, but I just look at statistics. I look at the facts and they don't lie. They tell the truth. Obesity is through the roof right now. Over 50% of American society is overweight or obese. Is it that high? Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Children, by the time they're, I don't remember, I think it's 38% by the time they're 18 years old, are pre-diabetic already. Wow. So yeah, it, it really does be, begin in our homes. And our children are, you know, we're paying more attention to the behavior of our parents than their words. But in any event, um, you know, I, I loved our, our conversation today because uh, I appreciate, you know, I'm being interviewed here, but 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 you've also <laughs> shared some of your truths with me. And I love that, Sean. Well, well, it's been nice, too, because I think when we first talked, our roles were kind of somewhat reversed. You did. I, you definitely did a lot more listening when we first talked. And it was nice to kind of hop back and forth. And I feel like we should keep our these conversations going every once in a while. I'd like that. I think that's a good, I mean, you have so much to say, Jay, like I said, and I love the way, I love the way you say it. And you can tell you get that, you get that coach vibe from you. You tell you really every word you're, you're, you're a slow to speak, quick to listen, man. And I need to be around more people like that. So I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. You know, I, I will say this is that the slow to speak part for me is because I don't want to just speak. Mm -hmm. I want to feel it. Because I want the words not to come from my thoughts. I want the words to come from my heart, the truth. And that's why I really learned how to practice slowing down. Look, I grew up in New York, and I said that early on in the the podcast today. New Yorkers tend to speak quick. Oh, yeah. Yep. Because New Yorkers don't have time. They just get it done. And I call BS on that today. I don't want to get it done anymore. I just want to live. I just want to live and see the blessings, live in gratitude just for today. Love it. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, there's so much, so many ways I want to keep talking to you, man. It's already been an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> well, you know, I I just want to say this to you, and, and uh, it's your show, so you can wrap it up when it feels right. Uh, I've given you some opportunities, but but here's the truth is that 
when you reached out to me and invited me on, I was intrigued by the work you're doing mm-hmm. from your backstory, your, your background and in, in breaking through your own addiction cycles and your own pain and your focuses on mental health. And that's an area where we've kind of touched on today, but it was, we can go much deeper into that, especially, uh, well, for men and women, it's not one or the other, you know, we're, we all have very similar challenges. Mental health is a huge, huge, huge issue. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a huge part of my story that I didn't even, I didn't even get into. I didn't share, but there is a huge mental health component that I'd, I'd be honored to come back and chat with you another time about the mental health component of the four pillars and, and ultimately how I have broken through my own mental health barriers, as well as the addictions. I no longer refer to myself as an addict of any kind. I have healed my addictions. I'm no longer in recovery. I have healed the addictions. And so right there, those are two powerful topics that we could keep this conversation going because especially now with the 2020 pandemic and where we are, how we are all have embraced the mental health aspect, navigating through this, this period where we have never, ever gone before. Mm-hmm. And even someone like myself who invests every single day in self-care, I too have been challenged from the mental health perspective due to the circumstances. So it's a great topic. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to have the opportunity to come back in and continue the conversation, mental health. And there's so many, there's so many different angles we could go and intimacy is another big topic wow. for me. Yeah. Um, healthy intimacy. What does that really mean? What does that really look like? Addictions. How was I able to break the chain to not one, not two, not three, not four, but five addictions that, should have and could have taken me out. So yes, I'd be honored to come back. You just let me know when and I'll, I'll I will. love to come in. That's great. Yeah, this is a fire. I got, I think as of now, I almost have, I'm sitting on enough podcasts till what, what it would be almost the end of November. So, which is, I like to keep maybe three or four. I got, a, I got a little many. So I'm thinking maybe towards, maybe towards the new year. Sure. Whatever works um, for you. But I'll stay in touch with you. Yeah. I'd love that. And Sean, I, I want to take a moment here just to thank you for finding me and reaching out to me and asking me to join you today. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation. And, you know, my greatest hope in this moment is that somebody listening has heard something that you or I said mm-hmm. that touched them, that is resonating with them, that provides them with hope, inspiration, that they can improve whatever part of their life they're in pain or suffering, that they want to improve. And knowing that it's possible it's possible can be done because you are a witness to it. You have done it as mm-hmm. have I. Yeah. As have so many people I've had conversations with on this show that you've had with you on your show. And before we do get off, I'm going to leave everything, those links in the description, but how do people find your show shows? I should say you have a few of them, yeah. but how do people stay up to date and current with what you're doing and you know, your content you're producing? Okay. Well, a few ways they could, if they want to watch Real Men Real Talk Live, you could do a search right in uh, Facebook. It is. Okay. If you search Real Men Real Talk Live, you'll find us. Also on the YouTube channel, we have Real Men Real Talk Live. We have a website, realmenrealtalklive.com. You could find me on Facebook, my personal page at Jay Rothman and or my website is healmindbodysoul.com. Again, healmindbodysoul.com. Beautiful. And like I said, I will have everything in the description, Jay. So, and I'll stay in touch with you, man. I will send you links and let you know when I'm posting this. Probably is going to be, what date? October 19th. So I'll send you links and stuff before. Okay, beautiful. But that is my my plan. Yeah, man, thanks again for the conversation, Jay. I definitely want to keep it going because there was a lot and I'm sure as I edit it, I find even more ways like, oh, you, you could have taken it this way or went to ask this question or did this. So it always makes me excited for the next conversation. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Well, I've enjoyed our, our talk today, our conversation and uh, stay healthy, stay well and uh, just stay being who you are. You do the same, sir. I'll be in touch. Thanks, Sean. All right. Jay. Take Bye. care.